We've been promised a once in a generation new act. As long as we have an alert and vigilant judiciary, we will see that joined up thinking. Today, for the Resolution podcast, we're focusing on the issue of domestic abuse, and we're doing that very much to mark the fact that the Domestic Abuse Bill received royal assent on the 29th of April and is now, therefore, the Domestic Abuse Act. And we'll be looking later at what the new Act means for victims of domestic abuse and for practitioners. We've got two amazing speakers today. The first is Pragna Patel, who's a founding member of South All Black Sisters, which is a leading human rights campaign group focusing particularly on issues affecting migrant women. Chris McCurley is a partner at Ben Hoare LLP in Newcastle. She is a long-standing member of the Resolution Domestic Abuse Committee and a campaigner on domestic abuse issues. Recently, she was voted the Legal Aid Family Lawyer of the Year. Um, maybe if both of you were to tell me a little bit about yourselves and about the work that you do and about your particular interest in this issue. Um, well, I've been in practice for over 30 years and I've more or less always specialised in working with um, women and children from the black communities, the Asian and migrant women, women's communities who are victims of all forms of abuse. So that might include FGM, forced marriage, honour violence, trafficking, um, international spousal abandonment, um, child abduction, sexual exploitation. Just, just basically, uh, I work with some of the most vulnerable people in our society, um, and that includes women and children in witness protection. And pregnant. Um, so for the past 40 years, I have founded and run South All Black Sisters, which is an advocacy, advice, advocacy, support and campaigning centre for black and minority women. Uh, the bulk of our work is supporting women subject to all forms of gender-based violence um, and, um, and um, particularly supporting some of the most marginalised and hard-to-reach sections of BME societies, which include uh, women and children. Um, much of our work is directed at the state and religious institutions and community leaders for creating conditions that are conducive to inflicting harm upon vulnerable women and children and limiting their access to rights, to their rights and to choice and autonomy. But the other part of our work is directed at seeking accountability from state institutions when survivors engage with those institutions to obtain justice and rights. So our work has by its nature involved uh, addressing issues of multiple intersectional forms of discrimination and inequality. And that involves the simultaneous experience of race and gender, class and other forms of inequality and discrimination. We very much provide a frontline service. We also use that frontline experience to campaign for wider changes in the law and policy and to raise awareness around these issues. As I said at the beginning, the Domestic Abuse Act has recently come into law. I'm sure as campaigners who've been so involved around the issue for years, you've got strong views about the extent to which uh, it goes far enough, what it does cover and deal with well, and what it still fails to deal with from your point of view. Perhaps starting with what, what the good things are. 
I think, first of all, there is for the first time a statutory definition of domestic abuse in the Act, and that includes coercive controlling behaviour. I think that's very important because for too long, statutory institutions, the police, social services, health services, and many others have often viewed domestic violence or domestic abuse in this kind of as a matter of separate incidents without really understanding or grappling with the wider power dynamics and inequalities in relationships that give rise to abuse and harassment and oppression. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the, the fact that coercive controlling behavior is recognized as, a, you know, as the context in which domestic abuse occurs, I think it's really, really important and quite far reaching because it means that actually institutions, including the courts, will have to look at when they you know, preside over family matters and questions of children arrangements where there's domestic abuse, financial settlements, you know, following a breakdown of marriage and so on. I think the other, some of the other positive aspects of the Act is that there will be placed on local authorities a duty to provide safe accommodation and related support where there are victims of domestic abuse in the area. Um, I think that's uh, very important because it, you know, it makes central the need to ensure that local authorities plan properly, strategize around domestic abuse and the need to accommodate, provide accommodation and support. The problem with it is that it's resource neutral. And that, I think, is as with many other measures in the Act, and indeed in, you know, in, in legislation generally, where it's resource neutral, it, it raises concerns around questions of implementation. How on earth are local authorities that are so strapped for cash supposed to deal with these kinds of duties that are placed on them without robbing another pot that's allocated to a vulnerable group. And I, so I think there are huge questions around implementation, but it is there in the act that, you know, the, the local, local authorities have a duty to provide safe accommodation and related support. So that's very useful. Um, and uh, others are, are similarly around homelessness and housing. The fact that women no longer will automatically, if they're facing domestic abuse and seek housing uh, from local authorities, will be automatically considered to be in priority need as opposed to having to prove their vulnerability in order to meet the criteria for being in priority need. So that might assist in, you know, placing women um, at, at the front of a queue, if you like, a very long queue. Again, questions about, you know, how will that translate in practice and what difference will that make without additional housing, you know, improving housing stock, mm -hmm. providing additional housing and so on. Those are some things. Chris, can you think of others? I'm sure there are. I'm just trying. Yeah, I can. To... Just, well, a couple anyway. I think like, like Pravna, I've long, long been a critic of the, the bill in its various incarnations and have lobbied, given evidence to the Bills Committee to try and make it better. We've been promised a once in a generation um, new act that's going to be all singing or dancing and I, I think what we've seen at the end of it is not that and not that by a long way 
Um, I agree that the definition is a good place to start because when we think about it, it's less than a year ago that the Ministry of Justice and the Legal Aid Authority were only looking and only considering um, the domestic abuse threshold to get legal aid, actual physical violence that's been proved by a court. So I think that's a big step forward. And I also think, like Pragna, I'm sure I've worked with women over the decades who do not understand that they have actually been victims of abuse. They may not know that rape within marriage is, 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 is an offence. They may be so emotionally and psychologically abused that they genuinely believe that they deserve the abuse. So they don't they see they see themselves as, as being the one in the wrong rather than the victim. Um, I also think including children in the definition as victims is a is a is a, a major plus. Children are often overlooked particularly if they haven't actually been victims of physical violence themselves. The, the, the fact that they, the traumatising impact of witnessing and hearing violence happening in the home, um, I think we're just, we're just really beginning to put our toe in the water of understanding that uh, as a family justice system, we've got a long way to go. Um, I think the Domestic Abuse Commissioner is an excellent idea. I've always said, and I've, I've worked, as Pragna has with Nicole Jacobs, to seek to define her role and to seek to how we can make her role as effective as possible. From my perspective, um, data collection is a really, really important factor. Um, it sounds very dry and boring, but if nobody is collecting data, and this is something that we, we, we fall down on so many times and we're trying to lobby for change, yeah. um, is that we will constantly be faced by one government body or another asking us, where's your evidence? Well. We don't have time to collect the evidence. That's your job to collect the evidence. So what I've suggested as part of the role of the Domestic Abuse Commissioner would be to particularly look at how effectively Practice Direction 12J and Practice Direction 3AA are implemented in the courts. And more, more specifically, what reasons are being given, what written reasons which are required by the legislation um, as to why, for example, a judge makes a decision that domestic abuse isn't uh, a factor here and the contact can just go ahead without any further ado, as it were. So I think that's very important. I think from an, an advocate's perspective, the prevention of cross-examination of an alleged victim by an alleged perpetrator is massive. We, how many years have we, have we been trying to get that onto the statute books? Um, it still isn't, I have to say, although the, the, the Act has been made law, the vast majority of it is not yet enforced and it's subject to statutory guidance and determination as it, as it, as, as it, as it says in the, in the records. Um, I, think the, I think the part six offences and the changes there must be welcome. Um, the prohibition at section 69 against uh, so-called revenge porn that, be, that has actually now been passed into law. It's, a, it's a, an abuse to threaten to share sexual images with the intent to cause harm or distress, or the so-called revenge porn effect. The offence of non-fatal strangulation, when it comes in, and I hope it does very soon, is yet to be determined. There is now, already passed into law, which is, is very welcome, is the um, section in part six, which states that a perpetrator cannot use as a defence in a criminal court the fact that someone has consented to being seriously harmed for sexual gratification. And that deals with all the aspects of the, the defence that's very commonly run, and we've seen it time and time again in the media, um, of the, the defendant in the case saying, I didn't mean to kill her, it was a sexual game that went wrong. Yeah. And that's the reason for, the, for, for bringing that the rough sex defence. Rough sex defence, yeah, indeed. Thank you very much, both of you. And it, 
if there were things that you were particularly disappointed that weren't didn't feature in the final version of the act, what I'm, I'm sure there are lots. What what <laughs> in particular? I think that you know my overall feeling of the act is what a missed opportunity it is. Yeah. It could have been so much more better, and it really could have been a landmark piece of legislation. You know, a kind of you know now that it's done and dusted, who knows when that opportunity will arise again. For me, the most disappointing, frustrating aspect of it is that it leaves out the most marginalized and vulnerable women, including migrant women who do not have secure status. For those women, many of these measures simply won't have any, make any difference. So for example, most migrant women with insecure status subject to abuse, uh, find it difficult to leave an abusive situation when their marriage breaks down because they fear that they will be deported or removed because of their insecure status. They also fear becoming destitute because most are subject to what's called the no recourse to public funds condition, which means that they cannot access the welfare safety net, um, you know, most forms of social housing or um, basic welfare benefits. In that situation, their immigration status actually uh, becomes uh, a stick by which they're beaten even more by perpetrators who weaponize their status uh, and use it to entrap them in abuse, completely entrap them in abuse and make them financially dependent on them because they've got nowhere else to go if they do leave the abuse. And in situations like that, women have a very stark, face a very stark choice, stay in the abuse and risk their health and their lives or that of their children, or leave abuse and face destitution and deportation. And so we, as a campaigning organization supported by many others, we tried to seek amendments to the Domestic Abuse Act to include uh, protections, more protections for migrant women in these situations. Effectively, we wanted the no recourse to public funds condition mm -hmm. lifted so that women could leave an abusive situation without fear of destitution or deportation. Sadly, despite immense lobbying efforts by us and others, and despite the fact that we had considerable support across the political spectrum, particularly in the House of Lords, the amendments that we put forward failed. And it, you know, ultimately in the House of Commons, the, the, the government enjoys a massive majority. And that makes it very difficult, actually, to, um, to bring about progressive reforms. And that was one of them. Um, other organizations like the Latin American Women's Rights Service mm -hmm. um, sought to lay amendments about um, the problem that arises when the police share data about migrant women who report abuse to the Home Office and immigration enforcement, which effectively means that they're deterred from reporting to the police crimes of abuse uh, because they fear, again, that they will be deported uh, because immigration enforcement's function is not to safeguard or protect, but to enforce the immigration law and to enforce the hostile policy on migration. Um, again, they laid amendments to, to, to effectively ask for a firewall so that the police stop data sharing with immigration enforcement when victims of crime report crimes to the police. They similarly failed. 
And the result is that migrant women are completely left out. They're just mm -hmm. excluded. And this, in our view, amounts to discrimination because it effectively creates a two-tier system of support for those who are deserving you know, and who have status and those who don't have status. And it is also in contravention of international obligations that the country has uh, in terms of protecting women's rights and children's rights. And so, for example, it's in contravention of uh, various, measure, uh, various principles of the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. It is also, it contravenes the Istanbul Convention, which the government is, uh, has signed, uh, is a signatory to and is about to ratify. But what's interesting is that the Istanbul Convention, which is the European Convention on Combating Violence Against Women, sets out sort of key standards and principles that all countries who sign up mm. must follow. So you can see immediately that there is a disconnect between what the government is doing and the fact that it's excluded migrant women from the act and its um, endorsement of the Istanbul Convention when it is in fact in contravention of the convention already. So, you know, we remain very concerned and very frustrated about the fact that some of the most vulnerable and the most marginalized women are excluded. And what that means is that effectively the government is signaling the fact that immigration enforcement will always take priority. And, you know, and that is, I think, problematic uh, for a government that says that it is committed to combating violence against women because it's actually... It is, it's built in discrimination in, in the very structures at the very heart of, of law and policy. That has been a major, major failure on the part of government. And others include the fact that it is the Domestic Abuse Act is not agendered. The evidence is overwhelming globally that violence against women and girls is a gendered phenomenon. It affects mainly violence against women, but you know, it's targeted at women and girls. And so the gender neutrality of the Domestic Abuse Act can cause problems and will cause problems, including in terms of collection of data, for example. The third thing is what I've already alluded to, which is that it is resource neutral. Um, and that causes difficulties. I find that very, very difficult then to kind of laud a piece of legislation that will struggle to be, you know, the institutions will struggle to implement because the resources are not there. And in, in a context where COVID, the, the, pan, the COVID pandemic has highlighted growing and glaring inequalities mm -hmm. around sex, around race, around class, um, I think that any kind of, you know, attempt by governments to bring out legislation that, that does not have uh, resources to back it up remains quite hollow, in my view, you know, because I think the problem often is not the uh, enactment of laws, but the implementation of laws, you know, which becomes the kind of real barrier for many of us trying to obtain, you know, uh, rights and protections for the for those who most need it. Yeah, I completely agree with everything that Pragna has just said. If I could add to that, um, I think funding resources is, is one of the, the major 
major issues and, the, and it's going to be the downfall of the sector, I believe. We've had well over a decade of cuts to every single part of our family justice system, the criminal justice system, all of our partner um, statutory bodies like social services, like Kafkas. Refuges have been cut. We've had cuts to the court estate by courts being sold off. Um, the courts that are still existing are having to deal with all of the business that once went into two or three courts is now all being tipped into one, which means that the public law cases are taking priority and the private law domestic abuse cases get squeezed out of the court diary. And that's caused a significant amount of problems that have all have been highlighted by the harm report, and which we'll, we'll probably come on to in a moment. But I think for me, what was the most disappointing about the Act was the fact that we already have really, really good law on domestic abuse. We already have really good practice directions. What we don't have is the implementation, the proper implement, implementation of those. We don't have an understanding um, within our court system. And in, in, and in that, I include every single participant as to what domestic abuse, abuse really is and how it impacts on the individual woman and child. And I say women because all of my clients are women. Um, and, and principally, as, as uh, Prabhupada has already alluded to, domestic abuse is a gendered issue. I think it was a real missed opportunity to look at a trauma-based abuse, uh, a trauma-based approach to domestic abuse within the family courts, and I think that's absolutely vital. It was a, a chance to have a mechanism to bring this into being, bring this into how we actually deal with, throughout the process of the family justice dealings with, with domestic abuse, someone who has, or, or a woman and children say, who have experienced significant trauma and how that impacts on them. It, it hasn't required an early identification of domestic abuse by an expert um, before contact takes place. That is a real miss for me. I agree completely with what um, Pragma said about the uh, local authority support, how on earth, and this is again a funding point, how on earth are cash-strapped local authorities supposed to find more money in a, a, a cash-neutral kind of a way to provide these services. It's just not going to happen. Um, I was at um, the CEDAW convention where the commissioners at the UN considered the domestic abuse bill and they told the government who, who attended to, to be examined on it that the bill itself was more aspirational than achievable without a massive financial injection. And I have to say that that's still not on the table. I, I mean, I think one of the issues here is that, as you say, Chris, it's kind of, it's a bill that's aspirational. Um, it makes the government look good. Uh, and I'm going to be quite frank and lay my cards on the table here. It's very easy to pass laws and make, you know, the government can look good, look what we're doing for women. But actually, the reality on the ground is very, very different. And so I worry about almost to the point now where the dilemma for organizations like us is, you know, where to place our energies. Do we consistently ask for new laws? There are, inevitably, there are gaps. But I think that we don't do enough sometimes to focus on the need for more resources for the laws that we have to be implemented properly, because I think it's the implementation that's actually quite an elusive issue for many of us. It's kind of kind of the elusive goal for us. OK, so there's this prohibition on victims of domestic abuse being cross-examined by their perpetrators, you know. But if women have no access to legal aid, how useful is that 
prohibition. What are judges supposed to do? What are women supposed to do? What are organizations like ours supposed to do? You know, how do we fill that gap? One of the, the deficits, a real deficit in the act is the um, lack of restoration of legal aid to all and families who need access to the family justice system in particularly, and particularly for private law proceedings, children proceedings. It always never ceases to amaze me. Private law family proceedings are treated as second class. Children's proceedings are treated as second class, you know, matters. And yet the family is the site where some of the greatest human rights violations of women and children occur. Absolutely. Don't provide the pathways to protection and mm-hmm. justice that women and children and other vulnerable adults might d- deserve. And yet the outcomes in these justice systems in these spaces have a profound impact on children's life chances. Mm-hmm. And yet we continue not to give this the attention it deserves. So for me, the fact that the act said nothing, was silent on access to legal aid is profoundly disappointing. And it tells us something about the priorities of this government, you know, and I have to be honest and say that for me, um, that is why I will never, you know, celebrate, you know, this act as, as the landmark piece of legislation that everybody was touting it was, because I just feel that the gaps are massive and glaring and, and really, really problematic. And actually, a case has been made out for a, a, a process that would be cost neutral to provide legal aid for both parties, providing they were financially eligible, of course, up to the stage of fact-finding hearing. And that has been presented to the government and specifically to the MOJ. And although they keep saying they're interested in it, we haven't heard any more about that. And I, w- I would love to see that come in because I think that would solve a, a multitude of problems. Well, I, I was going to say what, one thing that strikes me is it's an absolutely monstrous piece of legislation, isn't it? That covers everything mm-hmm. from local authorities' obligations to new commissioner, to new crimes, to new definitions. Well, particularly, Chris, do you think it's actually going to mean for the family lawyer who is looking for remedies for the victim of domestic abuse who shows up in their office? Do you think it changes the way that we approach the issue? I think in some ways it's already, I've already begun to see changes um, within family advocacy because Although I think the main change that will come about as a result of the harm report and the, the Court of Appeal case of H&M, I think those combined with the Domestic Abuse Act, they've created a, a real positive opportunity for change. And I'm, I'm, really, I'm really hoping that it, it will be a positive and it will be enacted and we will see significant change. Um, I think the change will come very slowly because the majority of the Act is yet to come in. Um, it's to be determined by statutory guidance or for any other reason, but that we don't know about yet why well, think some of it given a determination date but a lot of things are still being thought about I think like for example probably mentioned the um, sharing of data by say the police in, into it with immigration authorities when women report domestic abuse that was something that really should have got in the end 
Um, but instead, the government has said that they'll have a review of that. And that review has already commenced. Oh. And uh, I'll, I'll try to be positive about that. We've seen many of these reviews before. Um, but I think it, it might just catch a crest of a wave, a positive wave of what we're seeing as the impact of the harm report in H&M. And I think that that could, we could yet see a really, really good, positive response to domestic abuse. Well, Chris, I mean, I have to say, I think more than the act, it's the harm report. Yes. Actually making waves. Right. Um, and forcing, every, I, that's my view, my perspective mm. on this. And the fact that judges have come out, there have been a series of cases of domestic abuse where they're recognising coercive controlling behaviour. Yes. You know, I think those, we shouldn't underestimate the impact of those decisions or the harm report, which I actually think was a wonderful piece of work um, that was achieved mainly because there was an independent panel of right. experts who knew what they were doing, yeah. weren't encumbered by political interference and were able to get to the heart of the issue, you know, about contact arrangements and, and, and domestic abuse. So mm. I actually think that was probably those two, you know, the judicial, the, the cases going in the family courts around domestic abuse and coercive control and the harm report probably, I think, have made greater uh, impact than the act itself. On the question of data sharing, I would say to you that there is no room here for any positivity. And the reason is that there is a Home Office review taking underway at the moment, but we are having to struggle. We are, we are both campaigning, but struggling really hard to prevent immigration enforcement from being seen as having a safeguarding function. We are arguing that there's a conflict of interest and the police are basically uh, resisting uh, the findings of the first super complaint on data sharing that we submitted along with jointly with the organization Liberty. So a couple of years ago, we submitted a super, what's called a police super complaint claiming that the, the considerable harm was being done to migrant women. Uh, when they reported domestic abuse because the police were sharing their information with immigration enforcement, as a result of which immigration enforcement was doing its job, which was enforcing immigration law uh, for the purposes of deportation. And the police have resisted, the, the findings of that super complaint was that data sharing between the police and immigration enforcement um, caused significant public harm. The police have resisted the findings and the recommendations that came out of that super complaint investigation and are still resisting. And I argue that they do have the law, they do have powers to data share with immigration enforcement and immigration enforcement plays a safeguarding function. In a context where we know what the immigration agenda is and the fact that it, it, you know, it is creating uh, an environment that is conducive to deportation and removal and criminalization of migrants, how on earth in that context can it also have a safeguarding function by vulnerable people who are too fearful to report to the Home Office and Immigration Enforcement? So I'm not as hopeful as you are that the you know, that, that data sharing will stop despite the findings and recommendations made by the super complaint investigation mm. report. 
And I am very concerned because so far all the indications are that the police and immigration enforcement are not um, going to change mm -hmm. their culture uh, in terms of reporting, uh, deporting women, any detaining and deporting women anytime soon, migrant women, you know, anytime mm -hmm. soon. So there, there are some real concerns because ultimately what I see is that combating mm -hmm. violence against women and girls is not the priority. Maintaining a hostile environment for migrants is. And as long as that remains the case, I cannot see how uh, we will see a joined up approach, which is one of the other problems about mm -hmm. the government's response to uh, violence against women and girls is that despite saying that we understand and recognize the need for a joined up approach, different parts of the state are doing different things, contradictory things that undermine that mm -hmm. aspiration to protect and combat, protect mm -hmm. women or combat violence, you know, and domestic abuse. Okay. I think that was one of the findings of the harm report actually was that we work in silos and one part of the system Say, for example, the police may have made a record that this woman A or even man A, whatever you want to say, is a victim of abuse. That same person in the family system, because there's no joined up thinking and communication, could be treated as a perpetrator of political alienation, just deliberately trying to stop contact. Um, I, think that, I think that's a significant issue. The Harm Report also found very strongly that there is a pro-contact culture probably arising out of the starvation of essential resources at every part of the system. So that very, very limited court diary time can be earmarked to hear these often very, very complex cases and give them the time and the space that they need. Um, I think the adversarial system was, was one of the things that they earmarked as, as something that causes further, it, well, it, it makes two parents um, polarised in terms of their, their approach to a, a court case. So instead of, say, one person being encouraged and enabled to say, yes, I have been abusive, I will take the help that's offered me, that person is saying, no, it's all lies. That person, the, the other parent is parentally alienating. It's all made up because they're frightened they won't see their kids. And, and I think it further traumatises victims of abuse by having to go through that kind of a system. Um, the absence of a trauma-based approach is very significant, and that was something that, again, that came out of the harm report, in that there is no account taken at present of the impact of trauma on memory and on the brain and how it fears, interferes with what is traditionally what we have considered to be good evidence. So the type of good evidence that, that historically and, and traditionally we've seen courts ask for is a linear chronological historical approach uh, uh, statement that's got dates, times, who was there, etc., um, nicely laid out. Now, that's not something somebody who has experienced significant trauma can do. So very often they are undermined within the family court proceedings by being observed to be um, all over the place. Um, she can't, you know, she can't string a sentence together. Um, she's not credible, whereas the, the, the perpetrator is often seen as credible because they have the confidence and the, the self-assurance to be able to do that. So a trauma-based approach really needs to be part, an essential part of the system. 
Um, children's voices, that was another thing that came up very, very strongly. The feelings and wishes of children are, according to the Harm Report, and I would have to say I agree with this, been paid lip service to by organisations such as Kafka Social Services, um, because it is so much part of our pro-culture, uh, contact culture, to see abuse as historical, therefore irrelevant, or um, they've separated now, so therefore it's irrelevant, without actually looking at the long-term impact and the damaging impact of trauma on adults and children. Um, I think, Chris, isn't it also the case that and what we have found in our, in our work with um, women in the family courts um, is that often um, they're denied fact-finding hearings. It is course, yeah. quite, uh, and it's quite regularly, they're denied this quite regularly. And, and I suspect it's because of the lack of resources. But without the fact-finding hearings, I can't see how you can uncover the patterns of coercive controlling behavior. Mm -hmm. Because you can't, you know, if we are moving away from a checklist understanding of domestic abuse, mm -hmm. you know, a separate incidence um, and, and the kind of quantitative understanding of domestic abuse and more into the kind of nuanced and contextual understanding of domestic abuse, mm -hmm. then we have to have fact-finding hearings. Um, and, 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 you know, just, just a few months ago, we had a case of a woman who was denied a fact-finding hearing uh, and the judge refused to even consult even on a preliminary basis Kafkas before uh, ordering or reversing an initial order he'd made for uh, denying contact to of children to perpetrator he reversed that without speaking to Kafkas um, and, mm. and ordered shared contact you know mm. which really traumatized the woman so the trauma-based approach must also take account of the fact that the very structures and processes of the courts themselves generate trauma. It brings us on to H and then, doesn't it, really? And uh, mm. one of the things I wanted to, to know from you both is whether you think that that itself might bring about that sort of change, whether where a fact-finding is something that's easier to, to obtain as a result of of H&N, whether you, whether you have optimism mm. about that or whether generally, you know, you, th you thought the outcome of that case was one step forward and two steps back? Uh, I didn't think so at all. Um, I, I was really encouraged by the judgment uh, of the appellate court. Um, I think first and foremost, the appellate judges were very careful to be clear that whereas um, they, wel they welcomed the recommendations of the harm report, and they supported them, which was absolutely brilliant, and they endorsed them. Um, the purpose of the appeal is very limited and definitely isn't one of making statutory law. So it is limited in what, what it can do. But in, in terms of what it did do and the support it gave to the findings of the harm report, I thought it was absolutely mm. essential in terms of support for the harm report, support for change and support for a, a different way of doing things. So for example, um, harm report was, was critical of Scott schedules. Now, those of us in in practice have long thought that it was a nonsense just picking out six very often you were, were, were limited to six specific incidences that then could be tried and what the what the what HN said in the judgment was that and it went back to the um, earlier judgment in the case of 17 2017 case of of uh, Riel, which is a relocation case was heard by Lord Justice Jackson and he gave guidance 
as to how coercive control should be treated within the court. And essentially, if there's coercive control, it's extremely damaging and it must be identified very early on and that that would be the, the primary issue for the court to determine. And that's, that's looked at in terms of a long-term pattern of behaviour. So that allows the, the traumatised person to be able to say, I, I can't remember what it was, but he's done this for years, and he's done that for years, and he's done this for years, and he's done this for kids, and this has happened in that house and in that house, but I can't tell you what year it was. We're talking about yeah. a long-term, a narrative statement, but without the necessity of labelling, enumerating, and dating every single incident. But then it went on to say that what would be helpful was after you've established the, the coercive control by demonstrating a pattern of behaviour over time, which is undermining and abusive, it can also allow for specific incidences to be tried as well. So there can be an add-on, but not, not essential. And it's just that recognition that coercive control is enough because it's damaging enough, I think. And I, I think that's, that's absolutely vital. Um, I, I would agree with that. I think that that is a cause um, to be more positive. Um, I really, I, I also think that there's a wider significance of that, which is that um, at a time when actually, if we, if we were to put this in perspective, the imperative, the government imperative is to kind of move to an authoritarian kind of uh, agenda that is also seeking to curb uh, curb free speech, curb the right to protest, curb the right to mm -hmm. criticize, curb the right to dissent. And at, in a context where spaces for all of that are shrinking, the legal, the law, the courts become even more significant. And that is why I think that, you know, the, the fact that there was an endorsement of the harm panel report and that mm -hmm. there is this kind of shift towards understanding coercive controlling behavior, uh, which allows for kind of a more nuanced and contextual understanding of domestic abuse. I think all of that is really, really significant. And we are, I, as we move forward, uh, probably going to rely more on the courts and legal spaces mm -hmm. to, to progress matters um, as opposed to looking to Parliament and the legislators. Yeah. I think also the Harm Report highlighted the use of Section uh, 9114 orders. And for long, 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 as I can remember, these have been, um, they've, they've come up in judgments and they've been described as draconian orders that must only be used in the most extreme circumstances and then for a very limited time. Instead of seeing them for what they actually are, which is, um, a screening process. And that was again highlighted within the case of H&M and the judgment there. And the idea that the, the court can look at that and use that as a tool for screening to prevent the court process itself being used by vexatious litigators to, to, to further abuse is I think a really, really positive one. Thank you. Do you think we're going to see more and better fact-finding hearings then, Chris? I certainly hope so. And I think that what I've seen from the judges that I've come in front of since, well, certainly since the Harm Report, since the, since the HM judgment, there is an understanding and a will 
to do things better and to make things better. Well, it's, it, and it's not about demonising one parent and, 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 and it's actually about saying, look, there is a family problem here and we need to assess how serious it is. Then we need to look at, can it be dealt with? If it can't be dealt with, then we need to look at, well, is, is contact ever going to be safe for the, for the, for the, the abused parent and, and or for the child? I do think I think I do for the first time think that there is a will to look at that and work on it and, and make that happen. And I feel really positive about it. The other side of the coin, I suppose, is that there are people who feel strongly that it's too easy to make allegations of domestic abuse mm-hmm. and that it's become almost uh, a standard tactic, for want of a better word, mm-hmm. in private law cases in order to try and stop one parent having having contact. I mean, the two of you have vast experience of domestic abuse, as, as you told us at the beginning, over decades. Do you think there's any reality in, 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 in that? I think I've twice in well over 30 years of practice as an advocate been involved in cases where the, there was an attempt at parental by alleging domestic abuse. In both of those cases, I have to say, it was the mother who was making the allegations, but they were so fanciful and so far-fetched. It was very, very obvious, very, very clear that here's a person who's experiencing quite significant mental health issues. And that was picked up very quickly by the court and, and addressed and dealt with treatment put in and things improved. My experience of working with women who are making allegations is the exact opposite. Mm. They don't speak out because of shame or because the abuse is sexual and they're ashamed. The the, the abuse has been something that they've been made to feel is deserved by them, that they've brought on themselves. It's complex. There are many, many reasons why women don't speak out. But the, the reality is most often don't tell you the worst things, either because they can't bear to discuss it and speak about it or because they're convinced that they won't be believed anyway. And if they do air that in a court of law, then they're terrified of reprisals if they're not be- believed this time when they say it. So I, I can honestly hand on heart say that there's two cases that I, in all of my career that I can say where there was somebody who was very clearly alleging abuse and it was about something else entirely, it was about mental health. The rest of the time I've... I've the, the amount of support that needs to be given for victims yeah, of victims exactly. of abuse to win their trust in the first place, to help them tell their story. I think it would be very, well, it, it is very obvious when somebody's making it up, yeah. to be perfectly honest. And, and, and it's not something I've experienced other than those two times. It's something that said to you, Pragma, that you, that you come across in your work. I've not come across it. And the reason is... But, you know, it takes an enormous amount of confidence and bravery for women to come out and report domestic abuse, particularly uh, we're talking about women that I work with, the women who come from communities where leaving a marriage carries enormous stigma and enormous, you know, and that stigma has real consequences in terms of isolation, mm-hmm. in terms of ostracization and worse, honour killings, you know, honour-based violence. Uh, So for those women, the stigma of bringing shame and dishonor on their family, of that stigma transferring to children, which impacts on their marriage prospect or on their ability to engage in community activities, you know, all of these are very real consequences. 
So when yeah. women come to us, the, the, it's the opposite. They're afraid to tell us the entire truth. Uh, we find that most women, um, the area that they find particularly painful to disclose is sexual abuse and sexual violence. And it takes many, many meetings and counseling sessions and, uh, you know, in, in, in very in the provision of very safe spaces where uh, before they're able to disclose the full extent of their experiences. You know, we as an organization are very attuned to risk assessing all the time. And so it's not a question of somebody rocks up and says, I've been subject to abuse. We're having to deal with meeting multiple needs arising from those, the, the experience of domestic abuse, homelessness, mm-hmm. regularizing immigration status if immigration is an issue, facilitating access to benefits, facilitating access to social services, facilitating access to lawyers. And so when you're addressing multiple needs, you know, in that way, it's very difficult for women to pull the wool over our eyes because you're having to often provide, collate evidence, gather evidence, help women make statements. Um, um, legal aid requires evidence, you know. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to just be able to pull the wool over people's eyes. Uh, we have to support them if they want to bring criminal charges, you know, against perpetrators. That takes a lot of uh, confidence and a lot of um, you know brave courage to do that you know because mm. they know that they will have to stand up in public and make accusations and allegations uh, for which they are likely to be blamed no matter what the situation so it you know for us the idea that women would just come along and make accusations and that somehow they will sort of navigate their way through a system without evidence and without that kind of coherency that's required is is very fanciful. It doesn't happen. In fact, in our experience, the opposite occurs. Counter-allegations by perpetrators are often taken more seriously than the allegations made by women. And again, this is where I think fact-finding and this, uh, um, you know, this kind of Uh, moving, shifting away from individual uh, incidents to a kind of, you know, investigation of wider patterns of power and control are vital because when perpetrators make counter allegations, they literally, you know, are believed without that contextual analysis taking place. Are you really a victim in this situation or are you just using this? to get back at the victim and to, you know, somehow punish the victim. So in our experience, women very rarely, uh, you know, in the way in which they engage with us are very rarely able to to make false allegations and and even less likely to get away with that. Well, I I wasn't suggesting that you must have come across many false allegations. I was suggesting you must have come across the argument that it's too easy Yes. For, for every day. Yes. And and then that is part of the wider culture of disbelief that we're still up against, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I think what I worry about is also this is why when I talked about the need for a gendered analysis, um, a gendered contextual analysis is so important because otherwise 
uh, allegations and counter allegations become framed within the context of interpersonal relationships and just interpersonal abuse. And, you know, you need to understand the wider patterns of harassment mm -hmm. and how women are targeted because they're women or girls in order to understand how coercive controlling behavior actually functions. And on, on, and on top of that, there is an, still a long way to go for, for the courts to also understand coercive controlling behavior in different cultural contexts, yeah. in a context where, you know, race, uh, ethnicity, religion, all then feed into how coercive controlling behavior <clears throat> perpetrated and experienced. And also, Pagani, you must have heard this so many times. I would be a ritual and if I had a, a pound for every woman who said to me, the physical violence wasn't the worst of it. It was the emotional and the control. Yes. Yes. Because the physical violence, it's yes. a punch, it's a smack, it's over. Yeah. Yes, it's the emotional, psychological abuse. But also in, in the context, you know, the women that I see, it's also not a question of intimate partner violence. It's a question mm -hmm. of violence extended. on partners and extended mm -hmm. family members. And that paradigm is yet to, we've yet to see that uh, yes. understanding, you know, in-law abuse is as problematic. It's either directly involved in with the partner violence or it's indirectly involved, you know, in the partner violence that women experience. And yet the family courts systems and understandings are not geared up towards that. So for example, if there are financial settlements taking place after a marriage is broken up, that financial settlement will take account of the assets belonging to the couple rather than look at the ways in which in-laws have also spirited the wealth away from women or, you know, retained her jewelry mm. and her personal assets. You must come across this all the time. So oh, you know, the time. I, I, I also feel that the, the courts have got a long way to go uh, to understand domestic abuse also in the context of different cultures. I think that's absolutely right, although I've seen some positive change recently and I have seen a willingness on the part of the judiciary to look behind just this is a couple and yeah. to actually look at this is a family unit yeah. that encompasses not just husband and wife but actually lots and lots of different in-laws and extended family yeah. and, and I, I feel really positive about that because I think there is change coming. I hope so, because, you know, sort of that in-law abuse and sort of abuse in the context of multiple perpetrators mm -hmm. is something that I think that, you know, deserves more attention. Yeah. So we've, we've heard that there's been these three huge developments just in such a short space of time, the, the Domestic Abuse Act, the, the Harm Report and the Court of Appeal case um, of H&N. Do you, do you think together, once, once they've had time to settle down, to bed down, do you think we're getting closer to, at last, a joined up approach to domestic abuse, at least within family courts? I, I, it's probably too much to ask across the yeah. I think the will is there. And I think that it's, it, it's been a real road to Damascus moment, certainly the harm report, because it's really brought everybody up short and made us think about how, we'd, how we've historically done things, how we could do things better. And it's important to say as well that the government has accepted every single recommendation of the harm report and said that they will implement them. I think we're going to see a very, very slow, this, this is the slow bit now, 
because now we're seeing the working groups looking at how we can address things like a trauma-based approach, how we can address things like what do we do about section 9114. Um, there's, there's an awful lot of work to do, but I think the will is there. Um, I really, really hope the momentum carries on and certainly everybody I know who's been at the cold face on this is very keen to keep that momentum going because we do, we do sense a, a different future. And it is far less about the domestic abuse act than it is about the harm report that and how that's so. been received both by government and by the senior judiciary, which has been very encouraging. I mean, I, I would just add there that I actually think it's the harm report that's absolutely quite uh, significant in all of this and, and the, the, the judgments from the courts recently. My view is that as long as we have an alert and vigilant judiciary, we will see that joined up thinking because I think it's a question of who implements all of this, you know, and uh, uh, alert and vigilant judiciary that, that you know, is more willing to uh, implement the changes um, along with the other institutions, CAFCAS, I, think, I know they're going through their own internal review at the moment, looking at Indeed, the yes. harm panel and the implications for CAFCAS yeah. practice generally. So, you know, as long as these institutions remain alert and vigilant, I think that it is possible to see um, uh, to, to, to see that there is a more positive sort of future ahead of us. I wouldn't rely on the government. I would not. Um, and I think it's very easy for the government to take with, you know, to give with one hand and to take back with both hands. So my view is that it's the, it's the other institutions that we should look to um, and who are, from what Chris is saying, uh, you know, uh, showing a willingness to engage with what's put in front of them and the, and the kind of criticisms that, that have um, come out of the harm uh, report. So I'm hopeful as long as we have an active judiciary and institutions that support the judiciary. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to limit you, I think, to one each. If, if there was one... One change that you could bring about, whether it was societal or legal, that would make the biggest impact for victims of domestic abuse, what might that be? Proper funding for every part of the system on a rolling programme, including legal aid. Yes, mine is restore legal aid to pre-LASPO mm -hmm. levels, at the very least. If you deny access to justice, then none of these, you know, these changes matter. If people cannot get their into court and cannot get advice and representation, yes. then they cannot exercise their democratic rights and they cannot, you know, access justice. It's so critical. It's so fundamental to any mm. democracy. So that we have to see the restoration of legal aid in all family cases. Thank you both so much. That was absolutely fascinating, and I hope people enjoyed it. I hope you both did too. I certainly did. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. I, I've always enjoyed chatting with Chris. <laughs> Same. <laughs>